Hello, this is Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh, guest hosting this episode of the Classical Ideas Podcast. Greg invited me to this uh, wonderful opportunity to guest host after we made episode 176, where we talked about Pentecostalism in America, my last book. Uh, and I am happy, pleased, thrilled to guest host this podcast today with my friend. And it is, uh, it is a true blessing and a treasure when you can work with your friends when you can see your friends uh, develop, especially if they are younger colleagues, and I'm giving away my age. But uh, I've watched this young man's career since the beginning, and it's thriving, and it's wonderful. So I wanna welcome Dr. Felipe Hinojosa, and I'm reading right from the book jacket, not professional at all, but I'm gonna do it anyway, because all podcast hosts do it. He is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University and the author of Latino Mennonites, Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Culture. His work has appeared in Zocalo Public Square, Western Historical Quarterly, American Catholic Studies, and Mennonite Quarterly Review, and has edited collections and lots of Latinx studies. And at the towards the end of this uh, interview, I'll ask him what's next for him, because this is someone you should be watching, for sure. If you have any interest in American religious studies, any interest in the interdisciplinary world of Latinx studies, Chicano, Chicana history, um, definitely. So welcome, Felipe. To be here and thank you for that, uh, this wonderful introduction. And it's such an honor, um, as, you, as you mentioned, we've known each other for a long time. I remember, and as I was prepping for this moment, I was going back to my graduate school days at the University of Houston when I first met and was in class with Phil Senatier, which you and I both know very well. And we were in a seminar with Andrew Chestnut on Latin American religion. And I distinctly remember him coming up to me and saying, guess who I met at the Faith and History Conference? I met Arlene Sanchez-Walsh because we were both reading your book, Latino Pentecostal Identity. And we were just like, wow, this is amazing. This is great. And so, uh, and, and I have appreciated your mentorship and your guidance uh, over, over the years. I've, um, you know, really, I think there was a whole, if I may say this right at the beginning, I think there was an entire generation of Latinx scholars that really sort of set the debate, the terms of the debate in the field in terms of Latinx religious studies and history. Um, and you were a part of that and, and so many others. And when I was in graduate school, these were the books that I was going to, uh, yours in particular, um, and, and others, Lara Medina, of course, and Richard Martinez, Ampadres, and Roberto Trevino, and others, Mario Garcia, that were shaping my way of thinking when I was in graduate school and sort of shaping what I wanted to do. So thank you so very much. This feels like a homecoming right now. I mean, it's been a while since we've connected, so I'm just so excited to be talking to you. Thank you, Felipe. I think that's, that's about it for the podcast. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a better way to begin and end it is with this effusive praise. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. The book is Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio. All right, so broadly, the 1960s, lots about politics, and you bring the subject of religious activism, calling it a revolution. So set the stage for us. What got you interested in this topic? Uh, and why these four cities, uh, just set the table for us so we can get into some more depth. I started working on this project 
right around the time when I was finishing uh, the book on Latino Mennonites and I had come across in the archives um, the occupation of the first Spanish Methodist church in East Harlem in 1969 by the Young Lords. And I was enamored by it. I fell in love with that story. And I got to that story because I was doing an oral history with Neftali Torres, who was a Latino Mennonite from East Harlem. Um, and he was telling me about how in his Pentecostal church, the preachers there were warning everybody that if the Young Lords come, we have to be ready and barricade the doors of the church and all of that. That blew my mind. I was like, what are you talking? This is insane, right? What is going on here? And um, I knew that that wasn't the only case. Um, and as I started to learn more about what was going on and about the different moments and the different uh, periods of these church occupations and disruptions, I got uh, hooked in. And I quickly, quickly learned that this was a much, much bigger story than just about some young radicals and a church. This was about the bigger uh, issue of the urban crisis in America in the post-war era, uh, where you have uh, the fact that deindustrialization, uh, white flight, uh, urban renewal programs that were in essence um, investing in areas that were uh, at least uh, monetarily or at least neighborhoods that were business friendly or at least were in areas of cities that needed to be developed and taken in different directions. And that meant displacement. That meant that poor people were going to have to leave. In other cases, it was about white flight and it was about the development of the suburbs and the growth and the de-investment in America's inner cities and the development of the interstate system that made it possible for whites to leave the inner city in cities like Houston or Atlanta and other places. So I quickly learned that these occupations were not just about, again, some young radicals that were upset with a pastor or a church. They were using the church as a staging ground to protest urban renewal and to push back against police brutality um, and some of the issues that were affecting uh, their communities. Now, a little deeper, you start to realize that um, these occupations that I found, and there were many more, I just chose to, to study New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Houston, as you note, and I picked those cities for a number of reasons. Number one, um, the most documentation ex existed for these cities, right? So in terms of archival research, it was easier for me to get to and people were willing to talk about them. Um, the other is that these are the four largest cities in America. These are uh, America's most diverse cities. Um, and these are cities in which the Latinx freedom movement is um, either well-known like it is in Los Angeles, maybe a little lesser known in, uh, in Houston, but like New York City or even Chicago, we are only now beginning to sort of unravel the significant contributions that Latinx radicals and young people made to the broader civil rights movement. So I wanted to make sort of a bigger splash. I mean, if you remember my first book was on Mennonites. And so that meant that I'm in small town America. I'm in the Midwest and I am in tiny archives. <laughs> um, and I thought for my second book, uh, as I got advice from, um, you know, from, from folks as I was sort of thinking about where to go, I knew that it was time to go big and to, to, to maybe tackle a larger issue. And this one was a little bit scary, but it was one that at least to some extent I was familiar with, right? I grew up in the church. My dad was a minister. 
I could imagine what it would have been like for a church to have to deal with people wanting to occupy it. But I also sympathize with um, the activists. I also sympathize with the ideas that they had, primarily because many of them grew up in the church. They had a specific love-hate relationship with the church. And they didn't want to destroy what was happening there. They simply wanted to augment it and work collaboratively with it. All of those things. On top of the fact that I was a little frustrated that whenever I would talk to people uh, or even read old articles from Christianity Today, most, of, most people discounted these occupations. I mean, listen, they were short. The longest one was 20 days in Houston. Um, Chicago was one of the shortest. It was five days. L.A. wasn't even an occupation. It was a disruption of Christmas Eve mass. It was one night. And so there's a lot. There's a, I mean, I, I guess it's, I understand why people would have been like, why are we going to sort of focus on these things if they really didn't have much of uh, an impact? Um, and I wanted to tackle that question. That was sort of my struggle for many years. You know, it's one thing as a scholar to have a great story that you want to tell. You know, we all find great stories. We want to tell them. The second thing um, that, that you, you sort of start to think about more clearly is, okay, so what, right? What does this even mean? And why does it matter? And that took me a little longer um, to sort of think about, but I knew that the link with the broader story of the urban crisis and the fight against urban renewal, that was gonna be my hook. And that was gonna be a way that I was gonna try to sort of talk about the bigger uh, role. And one more thing that I'll say, and, and I, you know, um, what really confirmed it for me was going to the University of Illinois in Chicago, UIC, and going into those archives and finding documentation from Latino pastors, from the Presbyterian Latin American caucus, um, they were adamantly opposed to the occupation of McCormick Seminary and to the occupation of Armitage Methodist Church, primarily because they felt left out. Here they were for the last 10 years trying to raise attention, trying to get funding for their communities. It's not like they were apolitical. They were already involved with Chavez and the farm worker movement, okay? By the time that, that these occupations happen, it's not like Latino clergy are new to the game, right? It's 1969 already. Yeah. Yeah. So, so finding that hook as well, it really sort of confirmed that, you know, I think these radicals had a way in sort of what Latino clergy were trying to say as reformers. Latino clergy were not the radicals in this case. They were the reformers and that was all right. But that's sort of, all of those things really sort of hooked me in and said, I, I gotta find a way to tell this story. Right. What is fascinating to me is, you know, we're uh, broadly read as historians in the big picture of 1969. And you mentioned it, Nixon, Water, uh, before Watergate, um, the, just the, the country's coming apart at the seams, you know, and that's always the, that's the trope of 68, 69, but it's never uh, with, it's basically with white elites, white institutional church folks, my guy, Daniel Berrigan, right? Uh, Catonsville and the, the, the escape and all of that stuff. Uh, 1969 in LA, what's consuming us, and I was three years old, so it didn't consume me, right? is Manson. 
right? And and fear and, and the stoking of fear of just around every corner is crime or, or, or villains uh, and the stoking of the silent majority, right? The stoking of racial fear, the stoking of fear of, of crime, the stoking of that the country is coming apart, right? And what you're doing is you're weaving in the stories that are untold from, if I could say, our people, right? That never get told, that are never put into the larger fabric of this momentous year, aside from, well, there's some radicals and they're thrown in with the Panthers, they're thrown in uh, Brown Berets, they're thrown in with that. They're isolated, like you said, they're isolated incidents. So what you're trying to do is, is you're pleading with us, if you will, in this book, not to make these isolated incidents that mean nothing. Would that be fair? Exactly right. And it's something that I'm hoping, and I say it in the introduction, I'm hoping I make it harder for people to ignore us when they talk about the urban crisis or when they talk about progressive Christianity or these sort of progressive movements during this era. Uh, also, I was struck in this book uh, versus, and we've seen it over and over again, the institutional religious groups, churches, hierarchies versus grassroots popular religion. Um, places where Latinx people can find their political voices and retain their ethnic selves, um, as opposed to this rapid assimilation machine that has been going on for centuries, right? Um, and you found that as well. Uh, how was that working with institutional materials in some cases that you found in the archives versus talking to people? And how did you manage that, that tension of institutional versus grassroots? start off by saying something that that uh, that your mentor, that Vicky Ruiz, that somebody we all admire, um, really sort of highlighted a long time ago. And we should have been listening. And I think some of us were, but not everybody. When Vicky we said- We were. Yeah, exactly. We were. The religious archives uh, are points of departure. They're places to start, right? Because um, she was trying to answer the question, are they gold mines or are they dead? Yes. Wonderful and article. Wonderful yes, article. Yes. And what I found is exactly that. I went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to the Presbyterian archives, to uh, New Jersey, to the Methodist church archives, um, of course, to places in Houston, Chicago, public and private. Um, religious archives, you know, there, there's, you know, a couple of things that religious folks had during the era that a lot of other people did not have. They had cameras and they had money uh, to travel and to get around. And so when you go to these religious archives, you find recordings of speeches that activists made, you find photographs, you find all kinds of wonderful things from different perspectives. You find people in unexpected places, right? When I first learned that Obed Lopez, who was the um, founder and president of the Latin American Defense Organization in Chicago, and brother to uh, Omar Lopez, who was a young Lord in Chicago. Um, when I found out that as soon as they occupied McCormick Seminary, he made his way to San Antonio to go attend the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church USA, I was blown away. And then to be in Philadelphia and find a picture of James Foreman and Obed Lopez, and mind you, Eliezer Risco from LA, in San Antonio at this time, blew me away. And so, 
you know, all of those things in terms of working in those archives are really significant. And it's something that I, it, it, you know, I am a, uh, 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 you know, one of these folks that is constantly preaching this gospel, get to these religious archives because they are, they, they tell us, especially if you're a civil rights historian or you're writing about progressive movements. Um, the other thing that I'll say in terms of assimilation and ethnic identity was that um, the, the radicals that I interviewed, the people that I talked to in the Young Lords or in the Mexican-American Youth Organization or people in Catolicos in LA, um, for all of these folks, the church was a colonial institution, an institution that had robbed them of their identity and an institution that had tried to fit them into uh, a mold of Americanization that they never uh, fully fit into or felt like they belonged in and were actually flat out rejected, right? Um, and yet in the process of their own sort of political consciousness and the ways in which they were thinking about politics, poverty, um, critiques on capitalism, uh, anti-racism education, all of that, I found it just fascinating how the church and their understanding of faith and religion, and I know this is coming from Latin America, I know this is coming from the soil of kind of the seeds of liberation theology that are growing at this time, is that actually religion and religious faith can serve us well and can serve us in terms of maintaining ethnic identity, not just in stripping it. Church of the Epiphany is a perfect example of that in Lincoln Heights in Los Angeles. Um, when I interviewed um, Lydia Lopez, who is just, you know, one of these characters and one of these just beautiful human beings in LA that spans that narrative arc of Chicano movement and sanctuary movement, right? She's in both, right? Yeah. And when I sat with her to interview her in her um, uh, nursing home in Alhambra, California, and it's one of these progressive uh, religious uh, retirement yeah. homes in LA, um, She's telling me, she's like, when I first found Church of the Epiphany, um, you know, there was culture. People were talking about the Chicano movement. Um, you know, Father Luce was progressive. There was an understanding that faith and politics are inextricably linked. And I love that. It felt like a fiesta, she said. Juan Gomez Quinones, who was a longtime historian at UCLA, also mentioned to her and to many others that Church of the Epiphany was the biggest party in town. This was the place where Brown Berets and La Raza and others were coming together um, and meeting and engaging and talking about the movement. So the church becomes also a space where we can redefine it and, and change it and rethink it. And that's not an institutional thing. That's not coming from the top. That's coming from grassroots people. That's coming from people that grew in the church and then had left it and had come back. Um, it's coming from Catholics. And by the way, it's coming from Protestants and in a lot of cases, Pentecostals and the myriad of faith traditions that we belong to, right? Um, you know, so that, that was, I think something that blew me away. Richard Martinez, who um, it was a long time, still is very active in Los Angeles, um, you know, helped, was a big part of, um, Mecha and Cal State LA and, and all of that back in those days, we were sitting down and we were having coffee at a corner bakery, <laughs> very middle-class joint, you know, we yes, were there yes. <laughs> and we were having coffee and Richard starts off one of the first things he said, and I, I, I don't know yet what to do with this, 
and it didn't really make it much into the book, but he said, look, without Protestant leaders, we don't have a Chicano movement the way we do in LA. Mm. Uh, Tony Hernandez, the Presbyterian minister, and he was talking about uh, another Armenian guy who grew up in Mexico. And I cannot remember his name for the life of me right now, but I can easily get that to you. But anyway, he was a Baptist preacher who was very involved in the Chicano movement um, mm. as well. So for me just affirmed that there was something here that for whatever reason, other Chicana and Chicano historians and Latinx historians in general were overlooking or maybe perhaps didn't think was as significant. And mm -hmm. I tried to do my best to sort of get at the fact that there's something going on here, but it's both institutional and it's grassroots. And if we can get at that story, then we've got something special, I think. Great, great. Uh, just for the listeners, we are discussing Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio. Dr. Felipe Hinojosa is my guest, and I am Dr. Arlene Sanchez-Walsh. You can always call me Arlene. Uh, uh, just the the idea, you know, we've learned from Vicky very well. Uh, and, and I want to take us back a little bit uh, because sometimes we get into the weeds only because this is a very small group, you and I. Uh, for those uh, listeners who don't know, like the study of Latino religion, I want to say, uh, and I don't want to exclude the theologians, love the theologians, we wouldn't be anywhere without them, uh, probably number less than 250 people. Uh, and that's probably including graduate students. Uh, it's a very small club. It's a very small group. Um, so setting the table for this for this book, which is, uh, I don't think it's a micro study, but I think it's it's a study of urban areas. And you mentioned that there's a lot of rural areas that you covered in your previous book. There's just a lot of places that you have to go next if you want to like tie all this together, of course. But um, Latinx history, Chicano history. Um, you mentioned a lot of, of people that maybe the listeners don't know. Uh, you know, just in broad, in broad strokes, the importance of the 1960s to even what we do today. That the 1960s with Juan Gomez Quinones, Rodolfo Acuna, uh, earlier, earlier generation, George Sanchez uh, in the 40s and 50s. I guess the listeners should understand that simply to get a paragraph about our history in standard American history textbooks was a struggle. It didn't happen overnight. And in many textbooks, I do not want Felipe to go off on a tangent about the Texas uh, textbook debacle, but <laughs> you can if you want. This is a free space. Um, just this idea, right, that, that most of the listeners don't know anything about this history. And it's not their fault because it has been very hard to get our history into the mainstream. And it's very, and I've gone at it many, many times. You've gone at it many, many times. Essentially, it's we're fighting a double battle here. The American historical establishment knows very little about our past. The American religious historical establishment knows very little about our past. So we're trying to bust open two doors at the same time, which is tough, right? So talk to me about that. Talk to me about kind of this broad expanse of who, who influenced you and how you came about to, to, how that influenced you to do this, this book. 
I, I was trained at, I did my graduate work at the University of Houston. And I went there with a very sort of specific idea that I wanted to be trained in Mexican American history. And there is, as you know, a very well developed literature in that field that spans, you know, immigration, labor, organizing, um, you know, mostly uh, in the Southwest and in recent years, um, probably even further back, right? We're expanding it to different regions of Pacific Northwest, Midwest. There's been more sort of an excavation of that history. Things that, that drew me in was that when we talk about colonialism or when we talk about race in America, when we talk about immigration and all of these topics, um, the Latino story, the Mexican-American story is a very complicated one. It doesn't neatly fit into certain categories. Um, historically, Mexican-Americans were identified as white, uh, you know, by the census, and yet the social reality on the ground was one that they were treated uh, like second-class citizens, right? Uh, segregated, segregated schools, segregated neighborhoods. Um, you know, as one scholar noted, uh, that, that sort of contradiction of being legally white and socially colored, that drew me in, right? That contradiction and wanting to sort of talk about what that means as somebody like me who grew up in South Texas, as a Mexican-American, where does my story fit into the larger American narrative of democracy, of social change? What have our communities done to sort of transform uh, how we think about uh, society and civil rights and so forth? So all of these things coming together, I think for me, um, you know, were, were central. I wanted us to be a part of the discussion. And of course, when you read Mexican-American history, Latino history, you're quickly introduced to people that have been doing this work for a long time. Like my advisor was very clear with me all the time that, you know, you might have new words or new theoretical orientations, but it's probably likely that what you're saying isn't necessarily new, right? Um, and, and, and at the same time, wanting to sort of talk to different audiences, right? I grew up in the church. My dad was a minister. Um, and yet anytime that I was in conversations with people that were talking about religion and civil rights, the Latino story was often left out. People didn't know much about it. Where do we fit in this story? Um, and so I came in, like you said, just sort of this double, uh, pull of wanting to contribute to the larger story of American democracy and our contributions to it, but also to American Christianity trying to get a sense for what it means to be Mexican-American and non-Catholic like I was uh, growing up. And then more than anything, as you mentioned at the beginning, thank you to the theologians for all the fantastic work that they've done. And I was literally transformed by Justo Gonzalez in his book, mm -hmm. Mañana, mm -hmm. Ala Maria Isasi Diaz. But I missed the stories. I missed, yes. you know, yes. kind of the sort of everyday struggles, what people were dealing with and, so, and what I saw in my own home church. So that was, I think, really important to me to sort of get at it. And when I was in graduate school, you talk about sort of my influences. Um, right, right off the bat for me, it was people like historians like Robin Kelly um, and his book, Race Rebels and Freedom Dreams. 
getting us to think about the civil rights movement in very different ways, mm -hmm. in ways that move beyond a success versus uh, defeat mm -hmm. kind of narrative, right? To sort of think about imagination and to think about um, ideas. And then the other was the work of Natalia Molina and mm -hmm. looking at relational forms of race. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, moving beyond, I think Natalia Molina talks about this, Luis Alvarez and others that are Chicano and Chicana historians that talk about moving beyond the sort of the silo approach where we look at Mexican Americans and Anglos, African Americans and Anglos mm. and different groups like that, mm. horizontal relationships, or I'm sorry, vertical relationships mm -hmm. to looking more at uh, horizontal relationships, right? Yeah. Our connections and our overlaps with African American communities, Asian American communities, progressive liberals and progressive whites. Yeah. Within all of that, that fascinated me as as a scholar and also as a Mennonite who, growing up, saw a lot of progressive white people come down to South Texas and the border and do really incredible, incredible work. Um, and I saw them join hands with Mexican Americans in South right. Texas and do right. the kind of work that they were doing. So anyway, that's a sort of a long-winded way no, that's to fine. say that, that that's what sort of brought me into all of this. Well, no, I think that's important because I, I'm I'm guessing that the listeners are uh, needed that broad background. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so Chicago, L.A., New York, Houston. These are great stories. Of course, I, uh, uh, Chicago and L.A. are ones that I would know better. Um, and I'm fascinated by them. And so the, the relational idea that they're working together across race, across uh, ethnicities, maybe across class issues as well, across gender issues as well. Um, but it doesn't detract from this one fact, okay? And so we'll, we'll, we'll get into this. These are very short occupations. <laughs> They're very short um, disruptions. Um, and you wanna make the case that they changed something somehow, that there is a sustained effort here, that this sparked something. So pick, pick any place you want, whichever, I know Houston is very close to your heart, pick anyone, uh, and tell me about it. Tell me about how this specific occupation from your book uh, exhibited that kind of sustained change you're talking about. Go to any one of those stories, but let me start with Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and the struggle, right, again, is you have great stories and what's the sustained change that you're talking about in this question? Um, I was really, you know, one, I was very impressed with, first of all, the occupation of McCormick Seminary in Lincoln Park, a neighborhood that you know well, yep. uh, working at DePaul uh, University. Mm -hmm. um, anything about the Young Lords and that occupation, it had talked about the occupation, acknowledged its significance, and then jettisoned to talk about something else that the Young Lords had done. And I think what that did was sort of forget that one, the, I think, most sustained influences that they had was to insert themselves through this occupation into the larger conversations on the urban crisis and progressive Christianity in the United States. And let me say, let me say how I saw that. When I, and I write about this in the chapter, when Obed Lopez goes to San Antonio, it's actually James Foreman 
that makes space for him and gets Gayrod Wilmore to put him on the agenda. Uh, Gayrod Wilmore was the, the director and leader of the, the, the Council on Race within the Presbyterian Church at that time. Very well-known figure, author, longtime civil rights activist. Um, but Obed and the other Latino contingent, uh, Tomas Chavez from Detroit and uh, Elias Arrisco from Los Angeles, were not as, oh, how could I say it, charismatic, <laughs> didn't have the kind of, you know, street cred that maybe James Foreman had at the time. Um, and James Foreman does his thing and blows the white Presbyterians out of the water. They're just enamored with him, his rhythm, his speech, everything he said, and of course, his Black Manifesto, right? Mm -hmm. That document that was demanding $500 million from white church institutions and religious organizations as reparations for slavery. Um, and when Obed Lopez comes up, and actually you can go to the Presbyterian archives and listen to Obed's speech and Foreman's speech because the Presbyterians record, there's audio recordings uh, of it in the archives. You can get it online actually. Um, and Obed is, is quiet, he's unassuming, of the Presbyterian leader said is that his voice sounded like far off thunder, right? Like, mm -hmm. who are these cats? I don't know, but maybe they're coming, you know. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, that thought, I thought that quote was emblematic of the way people thought of us, right? Always mm -hmm. the demographic that's coming. Yes. The sleeping, the sleeping giant, right? Yeah, there was that, that, that was a time, that Time Magazine cover, right? Of what it, whenever we were supposed to arrive. Yeah, somebody should have told us that we've arrived because uh, <laughs> I bet you a bunch of us have not gotten that news, just not gotten the right. message. Right. I think it was 1982, right. 1982, right. The sleeping giant. It's like, I was, uh, I was just started high school. So like, yeah, nobody told us in East LA at Garfield high school. Nobody told us that we had arrived. <laughs> and, and you still hear it today. People are like, here we come, we're coming. Latinos are somehow on their way. And, um, <laughs> but but what's interesting is that Obed and the occupation of McCormick successfully convinced these Presbyterians to open up their wallets. Yeah. They provided all of the funding for an architectural firm in the city of Chicago to develop a plan for low income house or mixed income housing in the mm -hmm. park. They helped fund the young lords in multiple different endeavors to the chagrin and the frustration of Latino Presbyterians. Of course, they were not happy about it. Yeah. Um, but the young lords were able to get an architectural plan. Think about the young lords, Chacha Jimenez, Omar Lopez, all of these cats yeah. going to an architectural firm and saying, you know what I mean? And taking this money and, and saying, we're going to pay a professional to develop this plan. Not only was this plan well done, it made it into the top three of plans that the city of Chicago was debating and Mayor Daly actually looked at. Wow. Um, the, well, the plan when, when when we pitch the idea for a mini series to Netflix, because they've all claimed they want diversity. When we pitch this idea, make sure, you know, we, 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 we just will, uh, we'll pitch that one. That one scene will be fantastic because Netflix will love it. If they're serious about diversity, this has to definitely be something that everybody should see. Cause I just, it blew my mind. This one picture of the young Lords going into a stuffy, you know, this is the height of wasp ascendancy. 50s, 60s, right? They're, they're, 
they've always been there. They're not coming or going, they're staying, right? So this is an up and coming group. It's fascinating to me. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just had to chime in there. I, I so so that they, they the young lords won the the support of the local conservative community yep. in Lincoln Park for that plan, um, and on top of that, McCormick Seminary started to develop Latino theological studies, mm. um, and uh, the scholar who is at um, uh, at Harvard now and does sort of Mesoamerican uh, religion nope. and has taught and has taught there for many years. David Carrasco. Um, Yes, David Carrasco was one of the early, early scholars to teach there and to wow. teach a class on wow. the founding. McCormick continues that tradition to today mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Latino theological studies. I think the development of it develops in much the same way as ethnic studies. In other words, it's an outgrowth of what's happening in the streets. Right. I um, think you're right. That's one. That's one case where I see it sort of developing. I'll quickly say two more things. Sure. Because um, I, I could go on about Chicago. I argue, and you know Tim Medavina, who we both love yes, at Notre yes. Dame. Um, he wasn't as convinced with my argument, but I argue that in LA, uh, Catholicos, were, Catholicos were directly responsible for the retirement of Cardinal McIntyre. I think we should be eternally grateful. <laughs> <laughs> think about think about this most conservative of Cardinals. Oh, uh, my my mother powerful. my mother grew up uh, during his uh, his reign. And uh, it, it wasn't pretty. Let's put it that way. There, there was going to be no Chicano theological education under McIntyre, for sure. No, not at all. And to get these, this ragtag bunch, this welfare rights, these immaculate heart nuns, these, you know, Chicano activists, um, to get in there and do and rattle uh, McIntyre the way that they did, I think is quite significant. and. Um, in terms of the lasting impact for me there, you have to think about the fact that even though Padres was already in the making, it was already sort of being born. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's Catholicos that I argue really paves the way for them because the church would rather work with reformers on the inside than it would with radicals on the outside. For the listener, could you briefly describe Padres and uh, that whole scene? was um, uh, a group of Chicano Mexican-American priests, the Mexican-American priest movement started by Father Virgilio Elizondo and others um, from San Antonio. Um, actually, at that time, believe this was a shock to me, San Antonio was more progressive theologically and with the Catholic Church than LA, but because of McIntyre, right? Because of what's happening there. So Padres was a, a Mexican-American group of priests that really takes the Chicano movement and uh, brings it into the life of the church. For better or worse, they were also strictly Mexican-American. They, yes, were, they were not like Las Hermanas, which was uh, a Latina uh, women, relig women religious group uh, of nuns that was Latin American and was much broader than just Chicanas. Um, padres were quite parochial, quite narrow um, in, in, in that regard. But I think it's, you know, Padres has their big coming out party in spring of 1970 as mm -hmm. liberation theology, the, the bishops have met in Medellin, Colombia in yes, 1968. Yes. 
Yeah. They're, they're, they're on fire with this idea of liberation theology and the church is changing even as the church is bringing down the hammer on 21 young people in Los Angeles in the court system um, and um, pressing charges. And mm-hmm. that was their dirty little secret. That was their dirty little secret, right? They were going to press charges and they did. Um, and of course, the antics of Oscar Seta Acosta, which was their lawyer, uh, former Baptist preacher, Chicano lawyer, um, you know, uh, partner to Hunter S. Thompson, the brown buffalo uh, in fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And then his disappearance, which is very, you know, people don't know too much about. I know. I would, you know, give money for you to write up something of a religious biography on Oscar Seda Acosta. Uh, talk about a fascinating figure, probably um, as a historian, though, talk about digging in the archives if there's no archives, if there's nobody around willing to talk. Uh, it would be very hard. You'd have to piece a lot of little things together. But, you know, history is not all, as we know, right? It's not all objective, neutral, archival research. You just publish what's there. You use your imagination, right? And so we would be, uh, we would not be leading listeners down the right path when we say that historians don't do that themselves, right? That they don't pick and choose stuff to make the, their stories what they want to make the stories about. So that's just an aside. <laughs> just say that I love that idea. And if it's ever possible to do it, I would, I would jump at the chance because to read those court transcripts, and I sat at UC Santa Barbara, yeah. where all of the court transcripts from Catolicos por la Raza were, are archived, and to see the kind of stuff that Oscar Zeta Acosta, as their lawyer, to see the kind of stuff that he was pulling, pulling out his guitar and singing Bob Dylan songs. I, I actually wanted to put the lyrics of Bob Dylan songs in my book, but that the copyright would have been it's just too that, much. So we, we that would have taken you years to get, and the, and the fee that the publisher, great publisher by the way, would not have wanted to pay. <laughs> yeah, so we we cut that out pretty quick. But yeah, that. Um, so, so those are, and, and in terms of the long-term thing, and then the, the, other, the other thing that I'll say, both in Houston and in New York City, uh, in, in terms of those long-term uh, ideas and things, was that um, in both Houston and New York City with the Young Lords and the Mexican-American Youth Organization, these occupations put them on the map mm. and made them... Um, you know, a force to be reckoned with in those uh, cities. And made, I think it forced people to take them seriously in terms of what they were doing. And the Young Lords, as you know, became an iconic iconic uh, group in, in New York City. And it came out of uh, their occupation of the church. Uh, to go back to New York briefly, because I'm finding this too with my, uh, my own work uh, in looking at uh, Daniel Berrigan. And there are all of these very well-heeled, progressive celebrities, for lack of a better word, who are holding cocktail parties um, for to raise money, to bail out the Black Panthers, to help the Young Lords. Uh, you mentioned one where Jane Fonda shows up, which is great. Um, Leonard Bernstein is having something for Daniel Berrigan. Uh, I can just imagine these cocktail parties are great. Um, but Daniel Berrigan refers to it as Catholic chic. 
you know, because one of the social criticisms of the time was that this was just radical chic, that that as soon as and celebrities are, are have this notoriously very short um, memory for things, uh, probably because of their own professions. Right. You're only as good as your last movie, film, et cetera. That as soon as this blows over, they will no longer sustain these movements. They'll move on to something else that's more interesting, that's more fun. So how do you keep the, the New York story, the Young Lords in particular, from falling into that kind of trap of like, they were just part of this radical chic of the moment. And after that, and you also mentioned that in a lot of your the chapters, on is that this moment was brief, right? It, the, these moments were like, right like a fire like a fire fireworks right and then it kind of dimmed because internal problems and essentially the times moved on right so how does that i mean what do you make of that for me was um you know sort of it's it's somewhat difficult uh well let me let me tell you this way the early narrative of the book was and I, I still believe in this, although I, I, I need to do much more work on it. But the early sort of narrative arc was going to be from occupation to sanctuary. Uh, to think about sort of that long range movement. But that would have that would have taken me uh, too long. And I think it deserves probably its own book, maybe a part two or something where we can think about. Of infrastructure that Antonio Stevens Arroyo talks about in terms of a Latino religious resurgence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated by that, by the way, this yeah. religious resurgence. Where did that come from? How did that happen? Who's responsible? You know, all right. of that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I, I've sort of been fascinated with that one, with that one question. And I think for me, in terms of thinking about like New York and what the after effects uh, of it all were. Um, I was trying to be as careful with anything as much as I was trying to say, you know, what did you know, for, for the people that were occupying the church and what did, did this mean for the people of the church and for these broader denominations? Hmm. And what did it do in terms of the fight against urban renewal and what families were thinking about and so forth? And I think one of the things that I came out with was that um, radicals, right? Radicals are people that are wanting to go to the root of structural inequality. This is not just about a liberal politics or a progressive kind of move. This is really about how can we upend capitalism and create a new, a new society, which is what the Young Lords wanted to do. They had a 13-point plan one of those was that they believed in a socialist uh, society. Mm -hmm. You saw visions of that in this church and, and those visions are still with us. Um, the fact that they were reciting poetry in there, um, the church becomes kind of an early site for the neo Rican Poets Cafe, which is still a, a popular joint, although mm -hmm. now under risk of being completely gentrified uh, in the Lower East Side. Um, when we think about um, uh, healthcare in Latino yeah. communities. The Young Lords were the first group to come up with a patient bill of rights, uh, to come up and to really sort of push back against these um, horrible, horrific conditions in Lincoln Hospital and to bring in med students from Columbia University in New York or Northwestern University in Chicago 
and, and do healthcare screenings for families who didn't have access to healthcare. Um, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, getting this idea from the Black Panthers and instituting that within these churches and then having cities and entire churches continue those breakfast programs, continue daycare programs, continue that kind of involvement uh, in the church. I think too often when we talk about this Latino religious resurgence, we talk too much theology, as important as that is, we talk too much how many Latinos made it on mainline Protestant church boards, how many people made it to church leadership, and we don't talk about the kind of social implications, the kind of grassroots stuff that Latino churches took on, which is daycare centers in their churches, um, later, um, and, and certainly all throughout, Dan Ramirez talks about churches, Latino churches being sanctuary churches at the early outset of the 20th century, going way yes. further back, right? Yes. I mean, yes. that kind of transnational crossover is so, so important. Continuing that and having that continue to develop on and on, I think, is the lasting legacy of what begins to transpire in not only Latino churches, but in also white progressive uh, congregations uh, as well. Um, you're starting to see more of that. I think COVID forced that upon us in terms of the return of the neighborhood church. Mm -hmm. um, and it's special to go on Facebook and to see the First Spanish United Methodist Church, the, the People's Church in, in New York, still doing that kind of Young Lords outreach uh, for people that are suffering under this pandemic. Um, and to see that kind of thing happen, it's kind of special. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was great. Uh, listeners, we are discussing Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and the Fight to Save the Barrio. Felipe Hinojosa is my guest. And if you want, this book is available, University of Texas Press. So uh, I'm going to tweet this uh, for a week, at least, to try and get people to buy this book because it's essential. And the people who we discussed, you should read those folks too. Uh, Anthony Stevens Arroyo, uh, one of the first people to talk about Latino religion in any kind of sustained non-theological sense to put some sociology behind it and try to understand what's going on. Daniel Ramirez, uh, esteemed friend, colleague who's worked on Latino Pentecostalism for as long as I have, uh, who uh, looks specifically at his churches, uh, which are called Oneness Pentecostal Churches. You can look at my book and other books for that. Um, but there's a lot of other new folks coming up and Felipe is one of them. Felipe is one of the, uh, I wanna say a handful or two of some great, great younger scholars who are finally getting their books out. You know, it's like, what takes you so long? But we know, we know what takes you so long. It's called the tenure clock, it's called kids, it's called life, it's called just time. Time and archives and stuff. <laughs> um, all right, so a little pushback, as I mentioned, right? Uh, we don't want to make this a debate. This is not one of those things, but I am naturally a cynic. And I suspect that you're, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Uh, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. But you talk at the end of, and throughout the, the streams of this book, that there's a vibrancy to the religious left and that you don't want that to be discarded. Because as both you and I know, and I probably have contributed to it, so sue me, uh, the cottage industry of talking about white evangelicals, about conservative white evangelicalism and its politics, even conservative Latino evangelicals and their politics. And you wanna say, yes, 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 
But there's this vibrancy to the religious left that we don't talk about, that we should talk about, because it's as important. Okay. And while I don't discount that it's important to talk about, I'm a little hesitant to say that it's as influential in terms of, and maybe because I'm looking at meta politics, you know, nationwide politics, maybe because I'm not looking at grassroots and that's, that's my fault, right? That's my, my, the, the way that I see things, but is it really, <laughs> is it really uh, as, as influential? Because um, I don't see it. I just don't see it. Um, and maybe I'm not looking in the right place. So you tell me I'm not looking in the right place. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give you LA for an example, because I love talking about LA, as you know. St. Basil's disruption of the mass, Catholicos por la raza. I will accept your argument that they got rid of McIntyre. Yay for them. I don't see sustained religious left work here right now that is going to do anything to dislodge Archbishop Gomez, who is probably not as bad as McIntyre, but politically as or more conservative. So disabuse me of my cynicism that the religious left is actually something as important or important in a different way than the religious right has commanded our attention for the last 30 years. Yeah, all of that, all of that. Um, so let me just start off by saying that for me, um, or sort of the, the, you know, the idea that a Latino church is conservative is like, okay, we know that. So next, like what else? For me, the miracle is a progressive Latino church. For me, the miracle are Latino and Latina religious folk of multiple backgrounds, not just Christian, but of multiple backgrounds that draw on their faith and their spirituality and their connections to the sacred to build movements for social change. That for me is intriguing. That for me draws me in. So what I'm trying to say is, uh, okay, great. Latino evangelicals voted for Trump. Um, everybody wants to blame us. That's great. People can talk about it. That's fine. But can we also focus on, on the fact that it was also a religious coalition in Arizona that uh, helped to uh, win Biden and to, uh, maybe not win Biden, but reject Trump. Let's just say it, that, it, that it came to that. And that um, Latinx and different religious communities across the United States were at work to make sure that um, Trump was not reelected. That's one sort of way of thinking about it. And I think what, there's a lot of excavation work that we need to do. Religious left are complicated and lack context you know, for some. My thing is, I don't care what you call it, progressive Christianity, whatever you want to call it, but we got to write about it. We have to sort of explore it because I don't think, and this is, this is sort of this larger narrative arc that I'm trying to sort of build here, is that when John Fife and when Reverend Fife in Arizona starts and declares sanctuary and Father Olivares in LA and people at the Chicago Religious Task Force declare sanctuary and when it happens all over the city, um, I mean, 
over uh, the country, um, we understand that there is an infrastructure. There was already a network of churches that were doing the grassroots kind of work that led to the fact that you can um, turn your church into a sanctuary church. And I think we know a lot about mainline white Anglo congregations that did that. We don't know as much about Latino churches that did that because it was such a, probably a more natural kind of experience for them. And the fear of declaring yourself a sanctuary church for Latino churches is a very different experience uh, than it is for white uh, mainliners, right? So anyway, just to say that we have so much more work to do uh, on, on that front. I don't think that uh, the religious left, or at least the people that I'm writing about here, became as or even more influential than the bully of Jerry Falwell or the, the, the moral majority and all of that. But I take tremendous issue with people that and scholars that write about the destruction of the religious left due to identity politics, mm -hmm. that blame Black power, that blame feminism, that blame mm -hmm. uh, Latinx movements, that blame anti-capitalist movements for the destruction of the religious left. And there are plenty of scholars making those kinds of arguments um, as well. And so I think our truth is somewhere in that middle, right? I don't mm -hmm. think there's a fragmentation. And if there is a fragmentation, it's, it's, a, it's a healthy one. It's one that's necessary. And it's one that um, people at the grassroots level for a long, long time, right? In terms of how do you become a, a welcoming and inclusive space for multiple voices that can sometimes be contested, right? Um, I also think on the other front that when people talk about progressive Christianity or the religious left or these movements, it's easier and people maybe think or maybe it'll get them tenure faster, I don't know, to write about Latin America and to quickly jettison to the kinds of the rise of liberation theology over there as significant as that was, right? But, you know, we don't yet know enough and we, we really haven't done the kind of work that we need to do to find out how those movements get contextualized in the United States and how that happens and how that takes flight here. What I'm calling for in trying to be as bold and as dramatic as I can is to say, you know, um, I understand that you want to write about conservative Christians and all of that, but that, you know, certainly people are, it's, it's a whole cottage industry. People write books and get tenure and all that. I think the real work that we need to start doing is talking about um, and, and, and unraveling and teasing out all of these really complicated threads of progressive Christianity and especially in Latinx communities, because I think to a certain extent, you have to deal with religious folks that are going to be theologically conservative and politically liberal. And they're not gonna line up on all of the issues either. It's not gonna be a clean check all the boxes and then we're, we're set to go, you know? Um, and I, you know, when we talk about kind of the, the immigrant rights movement today with sister uh, Nancy Pimentel in South Texas, with people already doing really incredible and tremendous work, I think we owe a debt of gratitude to the kinds of on the ground stuff that's been happening for decades now. And as historians, we have a lot of work to do. And I'm hoping that people join me in that struggle. And there are already folks out there doing it. I think, um, you know, um, uh, a new edited collection coming out with my colleagues, 
Sergio Gonzalez, who's doing great work on Latinx Catholicism in Wisconsin. Uh, Maggie Elmore, who's writing about um, the Catholic Church writ large and immigration in the United States in the post-war era. Um, and what we did is we wanted to find Latinx historians that weren't trained in religious studies, but have found it almost impossible to ignore religion when they talk about progressive politics or when they talk about community formation or when they talk about immigration. We invited those folks. That edited volume is gonna come out next year by um, published by New York University Press in 20, uh, 2022, it'll come out. So I'm excited about that possibility and trying to really shake things up a little bit and try to do um, for, um, you know, for this generation, what you and Dan Ramirez and Lara Medina and Roberto Trevino did for my generation in grad school in the early 2000s. Wow, what, a, what, a, what an honor, that'd be great. Um, and I did see, I didn't see a galley of that book. I don't know where I saw it, but I saw the table of contents for the book you're discussing. Sounds fabulous. It looks great. And what I really appreciate about it, it is very interdisciplinary. So you've got people who normally don't talk to each other. And, you know, this is an inside baseball for most of you. Academia is just a wreck. Okay. <laughs> but basically, anthropologists don't talk to historians. Historians don't talk to sociologists. Sociologists don't use our stuff because it's not data driven. It's a mess. It's just a mess. But you have managed because you are a wonderful guy to get these people to talk to each other, which is very rare. They, they don't. Am I correct? They don't appear in edited volumes together. And I think going to the American Academy of Religion and meeting young scholars like Lloyd Barba, for example, who's doing great work on, on Pentecostals and farm workers in Central California, and then going to the Organization of American Historians and write and, and listening to people talk about religion and trying to figure it out. And I'm like, are you reading Lloyd? Are you reading these other folks over there? And then going to the American Academy of Religion, be like, are you reading these historians? Y'all need to like, y'all need to start talking to each other because there's some really great work here. I'm hoping we can start to build uh, those bridges because there's so few of us doing the work. We need to be more in conversation with each other. I'm hoping that happens more and more. And I'd actually, when I was in graduate school, we had at the University of Houston, we had something called the Mexican American History Workshop um, where we invited people to, um, you know, out and uh, talk about their dissertations that were in progress at the time. And we invited young scholars from all over the country something similar for Latinx religious history, for Latinx religious studies, where we can sort of come together and start talking to each other. Uh, I remember the first time that I presented at um, the American uh, um, Catholic uh, History Society with, um, with really sort of fantastic folks. And I'm there and I'm meeting, I met for the first time Jorge Rodriguez, uh, who I love, just wrote a great dissertation on the Young Lords and the first Spanish Methodist Church there in New York City. Um, and I'm talking about Catholicos in December of 69 and Jorge's from New York and Jorge's in the audience and he raises his hand and says, do you realize that at the same time that Catholicos was doing their thing, the young lords were doing their thing in New York City? And I said, yeah, man, I'm, I'm actually writing a book about that, you know? And we laughed it up and had a great conversation, have been fast friends uh, ever since. I don't think staying in our kind of own disciplinary silos helps us. I think we need to be talking to each other and I hope to try to participate with some really great folks to try to build those bridges. 
It sounds great. I mean, one of the things that de- that COVID derailed, among many things, and it's a petty thing considering the uh, the immensity of the loss, um, is I was going to look at Latina Latino Mormons and their political views. I was going to I was going to delve back into this, and because uh, it's fascinating, exactly that that what do you call it? I I would say this paradox, and it's a paradox. For those who believe that theology should be a neat, clean line, it's not a paradox for those of us that know theology is a mess. But theologically conservative, politically moderate to liberal, uh, socially conservative, but politically uh, wanting to be inclusive, uh, it's a hard, hard line in conservative religious circles. Uh, but that story also needs to be told, which is what I was going to do or as I was going to try to do. But I, I know that other people have done it. See, that's a thing. Other folks have done it. Sujay Vega, who you have in your your collection, marvelous work on Latino Mormons. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. So I think anybody willing to reach out to Felipe, I'm not giving you more work to do, to other people who are trying to bridge this gap between Latino religion and Latino history and how this they somehow had this divorce and they don't talk to each other anymore. It's like, well, no, they've always been there. It's always been a jumble and a mix. It's just, we have to untangle it, right? And it's messy and it's not clear and it's not clean and it's not uh, uh, it's not straight line one to the other. There is no such thing. There's no linear history. There's no linear theology. There's no linear religious studies, right? But again, we, we just push against academic uh, kingmakers, queenmakers who've insisted that these lines must be kept clean. You know, I took a lot of shots, at least early on, from uh, Chicano historians, from my own peers in graduate school who were like, oh, you're doing religion. Like, so are you very religious? Are you going to yes. pray right before we start seminar? Like, yes. yes. Nobody, nobody else gets those kinds of, I mean, if you do labor history, people are not automatic. Oh, you must, you know, have grown up working in this industry or whatever it is. Um, uh, but the assumptions that people make with folks doing religious studies, I think are very different. And, you know, I, I, I took my shots, but I've also been very lucky. I've, I've had some great colleagues in um, uh, Chicano and Chicana history that have really sort of taken to it and have brought me in and formed part of the conversation on the Chicano movement. And when when you have people like that that are willing to say, we need to really sort of open this up because there's a lot about the movement that we don't know about. Um, I've benefited and been very lucky in that re- regard. And so I'm just, yeah. I mean, at this point, just sort of being very grateful to get to do the work that that I get to do. And especially as you mentioned, kind of the way that COVID-19 derailed all of us, um, you know, I, I it, it's just, yeah, blessing to be able to be where I'm at and be able to have this book, even as it pub- was published in the middle of the pandemic, I have a lot to be grateful for, so. What's next for you? You just put another one in the hopper, right? This edited volume, if you can talk about it, give us a brief uh, 30 seconds on what you're, what's churning, what's your next project? And what I'm thinking about is, and this is overwhelming for me, um, is I'm really thinking about the sanctuary movement. Um, I have it in my mind and in my heart. I've done some archival research already. It's such a huge topic, as you know, very overwhelming, but it's something that I'm drawn to over and over. Um, I just have to sort of, like I did with these other two books, find out what's the story that I want to tell and see if I can just go from there. Um, 
it, with the sanctuary movement, the significance of it is going to be much easier. Um, you know, but trying to find a story that I want to tell within it, and then also being one of maybe of historians that are starting to talk more about the 1980s um, is something that, that I'm going new uh, into. Uh, so I've got that. There's also another great book that I'm working on with another colleague of mine, an edited collection on food. And of course, I mean, you know, I love to eat and I love to travel. And so we're working on something where we're talking to people that, um, that cook, that are chefs, um, and that really sort of are thinking about the intersections of ethnic studies, food, um, and its accessibility, uh, its contributions to culture and healthcare. So uh, I'm excited about those, those two things right now. The sanctuary one is a lot further off though. Oh, okay. Well, those both sound fascinating. They sound great. And that edited volume, what's the name of that edited volume again that's coming out the beginning of next year? Our uh, Latino Religious Politics Since 1945. Um, that's coming out by NYU Press in February of 22. Um, Jerry Cadava, uh, who's at Northwestern and spoke a lot about Latino evangelicals. I disagreed with him on some aspects. I love what he said in other aspects, but um, he's writing the afterword, which we're very grateful that he agreed to do that. And then we've got a great cohort of young uh, and mid-career Latinx scholars and historians that are writing about religion from a slightly different perspective, coming at it from a more ethnic studies perspective. Well, uh, when that's published, and if we can get our uh, esteemed host, uh, Mr. Greg Souten, to uh, give us another platform here. I'd like to invite you back and maybe a couple of your uh, co-writers, uh, co-editors to do this again, because uh, I think this is a beginning of a sustained co uh, conversation. Uh, so I hope we can do that. Uh, I have been talking to Dr. Felipe Hinojosa, the author of Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupation and the Fight to Save the Barrio, University of Texas Press, just out, just out. And it has been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time.